Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Professor Natalie Sinclair from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Natalie has an international reputation for her studies of embodied cognition and tangible maths learning, and she's generally recognised as doing really interesting work around the philosophy of mathematics education. She's worked as a maths teacher, but Natalie's PhD is actually in the philosophy of education. So we started off the conversation by reflecting on this approach to maths education. Pure maths and philosophy have got clear affinity stretching back to Plato and Pythagoras. But I first asked Natalie to reflect on her experiences of how philosophical approaches go down in maths education circles. How open are all maths educators to the philosophy of mathematics? I think um, math educators, uh, researchers are definitely all open to it and uh, realize that um, their whatever theory of learning or teaching that you have depends on certain philosophical assumptions, um, depends on what you think learning is, what counts as you know evidence of learning, how it happens. Um, when you're looking at learning, like where where do you see it? Uh, do you see it in a person? Do you see it in a situation? Um, and with mathematics, I think those questions uh, become all the more complex because mathematics has this aspect to it that always seems sort of more abstract and more difficult to see uh, thinking in, in, in our um, normal assumptions about mathematics. So I think uh, if you're talking about math educators in terms of teachers, um, I don't think they necessarily think they have a philosophy of mathematics, or, um, but I think they have a philosophy of you know, teaching, which is a, a pedagogy, which will be related in somehow to a philosophy of mathematics. And I guess maths education is applied and educators are always in a hurry. So in some ways, philosophy is a useful corrective to that, that constant need to be you know, pushing ahead and always moving forward. It's, it's funny you say that. I think it's true we're in a hurry because we're always under a lot of pressure to be relevant and to come up with results. And that can sometimes um, make us forget or um, not pay sufficient attention to what our philosophical assumptions are. Um, so I think this, you can see this uh, in the use, um, almost the automatic use of many of Piaget's theories that most people more or less subscribe to, but may not realize what kinds of um, assumptions Piaget is making and how that might matter to teaching or to our understanding of, of um, student learning. So, you know, just a simple one that Piaget always thought that you started with concrete and you went through these different levels and you got to abstract. And uh, so that's a certain way of viewing um, the uh, ascension of learning, but it's also a certain way of viewing mathematics. And there are other theorists who have come around who said, hey, wait a minute, you know, Things aren't concrete or abstract in and of themselves, 
Um, it's our relations with them that define whether they're concrete and abstract. And we know that young children deal with abstract things all the time, like love, you know? Uh, and so, um, so this like um, just brings into question some assumptions we have about how we order learning and who gets counted as a successful learner. And I just wanted to go on and um, ask a couple of things that you're, you're well known for. And first is this idea of embodied cognition in maths thinking and maths learning. So, I mean, starting off with the basics, I mean, what is meant by this idea of embodied cognition? So it's it's the thinking about how what role does our body play in knowing? You know, if you ask most people uh, on the street without mentioning math, I think everybody says, yeah, the body is, is important in different ways. Um, and they can usually come up with examples of it. Um, in math, it's always been, um, no, no, math is about reasoning. So what, could the what role could the body you know, play in reasoning? That's sort of built on ideas from Piaget, but also, you know, often we talk about how Descartes sort of really sets up this dichotomy between, you know, the knowing mind and the moving body and, and the separation between the two. And famously, you know, that um, what, what is empirical or what is um, coming in through the senses isn't really important. So... So embodied cognition for mathematics, I think, is really important because it's saying, hey, wait, the body does play this really important role in our understanding of mathematical concepts. Um, and more and more evidence is coming out of neuroscience, of cognitive science that shows um, how, for example, using our gestures in certain ways uh, can help us not only communicate more effectively, but also complement uh, language. Because with your hands, you can be, you're very spatial, you, you're, you're mobile. And there are many mathematical concepts that are easier to understand. Like if I talk about slope, and I can say rise over run, or I can say, you know, y1 minus y2 over x1 minus x2, that's all symbolic, and it's very precise and helpful. But if I just put my hand up like this and say, you know, small, lower, the smaller slope, higher slope. Um, I, I'm, I'm telling you so much. I'm telling you so much that's really important to your conceptualization of that slope. So, so in terms of teacher education, then, I mean, these, these are clearly important things that we need to be helping teachers become aware of. So, are these already part of maths education curricula and, and professional learning? I think they're they're becoming more so. I mean, I think, um, you know, there was a, more or less a language turn in math education that began in the 90s that got teachers very aware of the importance of what kind of language you use with students, the difference between informal and formal language, and the importance of not just memorizing a bunch of vocabulary, but working on communication. And I think we're going to see um, sort of more work that's related on to the body for in gestures, for example, with the research that shows that the more teachers gesture, the more students gesture, which helps them understand things. So thinking about um, what, not just any gestures, like you can't just throw your arms around wildly and hope that that's going to help with mathematics learning. But there are certain ways you can use uh, your hands to communicate important mathematics information. Now, a problem is, is that that what I said that gestures were good at, which are the spatial dynamic um, aspects of mathematics, 
are usually the ones that um, teachers themselves have had the less ex least amount of experience with because they've been taught with quite static and um, um, you know use symbolic kind of approaches. So they might not even think of the slope as being this thing that you can move up and down. So that requires us rethinking sort of um, for, with teachers, like what do these concepts actually mean and what are different ways that you can communicate them with students. And then once they start thinking about the concepts in that way, then I think that mode of communication is going to come pretty, pretty quickly. Um, because once you start thinking about a slope like this, you can't help it. You're going to start moving your hands when you're in the classroom. So embodied cognition is clearly important for teachers, but I mean, also also for students, I guess. And I really liked your writing on what is going on with children counting on their fingers. And you wrote, the person who counts on their fingers is both the one who counts and the thing being counted. And I thought that, I thought that was a really fascinating idea. I mean, can you expand a little on, on what's going on here? Yeah, I think it's fascinating too. And I think it's um, this special, really special uh, role that our hands play that they're part of us we have them around all the time um, but they're also kind of a tool which we usually think as being external to us so the hand plays this role as our almost our first tool in, in mathematics and um, yeah we we learn there's evidence that shows that just learning to differentiate your fingers is related to you learning uh, like one, two, three, like sort of identifying the difference in numbers. So that, that shows like the close connection. And apparently the place in your brain that lights up when you think about your fingers is right next to the place in your brain that lights up when you're operating. So there's a close connection there and every single culture in the world has a way of using their fingers uh, to count or to calculate. It's different. There's beautiful differences, but everybody does it, which makes you think like it must, there must be something there worth building on rather than saying stop using your hands when you get into the math classroom. Fascinating. So, I mean, so we've done embodied cognition, but I mean, another thing that you're well known for is the role of the aesthetic in mathematics. Now, aesthetics means a bunch of different things to different people. Your use of it is quite specific. So, I mean, how do you define the aesthetic experience of solving mathematical problems and, and learning maths? Yeah, right. So you're right that it has different meanings. And I think for um, the everyday meaning of aesthetic, people usually think of, you know, beautiful museum pieces. And, and uh, that's not really what I was that what I'm how I use it, though. I don't deny that that's like an, <laughs> a valid use of the word aesthetic. But I was uh, very drawn by the work of Dewey early on on aesthetic experience, as you said, that was something that helped me talk about ways of being in the world that aren't just strictly cognitive and that rely on affective um, or value kinds of judgments um, that are um, incredibly important in mathematics, despite the fact that we're always um, associating it with, you know, strictly kind of logical ways of thinking. So there's a lot of choice in mathematics. And that's partly because there isn't like a real world against which we can decide which mathematics is the is the most relevant mathematics to, to study. So we so there's a lot of choice and we and mathematicians are always like sort of um, arguing about wh which which is the important thing here, we, we, which are the important problems for us to be working on. And um, they use aesthetic criteria for that. They don't usually tell us what those aesthetic criteria are, but they totally do. 
And in our classrooms where we're now asking kids to come up with multiple solutions, um, you know, that, that becomes something if we're not, if we're going to move out of just the right wrong idea in mathematics and look at, oh, that solution really helps me understand how something about how the problem is. That solution is so elegant or so um, simple. These kinds of things can be part of what it means to do mathematics. And can for what I always find very interesting is that the, the kids who respond to those kinds of questions that involve affect and values are often very different than the kids who are, you know, getting straight A's all the time. So it becomes just a different way of connecting with people about what they find interesting or valuable. And just the fact that you can ask that question in math class. And showing maths to be an open-ended rather than a, a closed process, as you say. Now, now we've talked about Dewey, we've talked about Piaget. I mean, what other thinkers have you found useful in shedding light on, on maths education issues? So um, I'm a big fan of Whitehead's. I, I think uh, he had a lot to say in different phases of his life that were about philosophy, but also about learning and also about mathematics. Uh, you know, he's kind of famous for having worked on um, the fundamental structure of arithmetic uh, with his uh, pal Bertrand Russell. And after that, sort of totally moving away from that idea um, that there are uh, perfect truths out there that we can determine. Um, and uh, you're talking a lot about the importance of rhythm and romance in mathematics, how we can't, how, how we have to like um, stir the imagination of, of kids, uh, you know, with things like infinity. You know, most eight year olds are like really excited about <laughs> infinity. How come we never study infinity? In math, it's like the most interesting idea. Um, so, so Whitehead has been really uh, um, important to me. Um, in terms of the, some of the post-human thinking, um, Karen Barad, who's a uh, um, philosopher, but also physicist, um, has done a lot of work that's helped me sort of understand how concepts, um, we can think of them both as socio-cultural things, but also as material things. So that we're not just going into the sociocultural realm, but we're understanding how real, physical, embodied kinds of experiences are interconnected with some of the sociocultural um, dimensions of, of thinking and learning. So uh, I, I, uh, I, I really enjoy uh, her work and she connects it with ethics too. So, yeah, yeah. so, so finally then, uh, finally, I'm interested in what's on the horizon. Um, are there any ideas that you're beginning to think about that might turn into the next five years of, of research and, and teaching? Anything that you're beginning to get interested in? Well, um, recently I've been uh, thinking a lot about time. And time is something that uh, I'm interested in mathematically, of course, because uh, mathematics of time is, is uh, mathematics, you know, is both super interested in time because it, it, it is interested in calculus, which is all about motion, which is all about time. But it's also famously completely atemporal because uh, you know nothing ever happens in mathematics. Everything is just true. Uh, so that that tension in mathematics, but also the tension sort of um, coming out of the sciences, like the whole um, you know contemporary physics idea of time as being completely symmetrical, that it can't tell the past from the future. And what would that mean to our ideas of, you know, time passing or 
us even having progress if, if we can't tell the past from the future. Um, and how much our learning theories are really based on a kind of, um, you know, vector of, of time moving from not so smart to more smart and, and, and infinitely far. And how, how to think about time in ways that don't just subscribe to sort of the Western Eurocentric idea of time, um, but can take in, and, and take into consideration sort of how much our ideas of time um, have been um, uninviting for a, a lot of people and how we can think of time differently, really. Like, just think of the bells of the classroom and the way we do things by years and by, you know, all of that is like a very, like, um, strict, narrow idea of time that we have. Which is really interesting. I mean, given how important time and timetables and, you know, the whole structure of, of time is such an organizing presence in school. So, I mean, bringing those ideas in, into the maths classroom is incredibly provocative. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Well, good luck with that. Um, anyway, many thanks, Natalie. It's been great to have a little bit of time to speak with you and I look forward to reading more of this in the near future. Thanks for your great questions.